Amen. Thank you, Luke. As you guys can see on your tables, uh, we're partaking of communion together uh, at the end of our service. And so I just wanted to um, remind you of that. Uh, I wanted you, as we go through our service together, as we go through the word of God together, for you to be aware of that, for you to be contemplating and meditating on the reality of what communion is, to be preparing your own heart to be worshiping the Lord. There's just no better time to celebrate communion than right after staring at the cross. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, as you see those elements on your table, to begin thinking and meditating in your own heart about partaking in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. There are really only three times in my life that I can say that I've had that moment where your life flashes before your eyes. You hear that expression, you hear that phrase when uh, something terrifying is happening and uh, you feel like you're on death's doorstep. Um, one of it was uh, one of the times was when I was mountain biking and I, I hit a rock, my front tire blew out, I flipped over the handlebars, I flew. Uh, over, I, I did a couple somersaults, and I landed on a rock with my back to it. I had flipped over and spun around. I landed with my back to this rock. It had terrified me just doing that. My helmet cracked, um, and then I was, I was laying down against this rock with a tree branch. It was kind of a stump of a tree that looked like somebody had actually put it into a point with a, a knife. It looked like somebody had made this to be a spear, and then decided, oh, I don't need a spear, I can go buy one. And so they, they left it there. But literally, my arm got all cut up as I was falling because I, I hit against it, and I was all bloodied. But I just thought, if I had moved just over just a little bit, it would have just impaled me. Uh, and in that moment, my life flashed before my eyes. The second was uh, when I lived in Israel, um, I, I had spring break in Egypt, and it was an amazing experience, but there was one evening where we were taking a taxi home, and the taxi driver said, you know, I need, to, I need to make a stop really quickly at my house for something, and we drove hours to this man's house, and it was in the back of wherever Egypt's back alleys are. That's where we were, and I just totally thought, I'm, we're not making it out of here. Like, this is the end. They want us for some reason, maybe Americans to them are special and we're going to be kidnapped. They don't even know I'm nobody to anyone. So like, this is bad news. We're all going to die. The third was uh, in college, I was surfing and uh, I was sitting on my surfboard and I saw a wave. Uh, it probably realistically was around 10 feet. It felt like it was a thousand feet. And I remember watching as this wave started building, and, and typically you can see a wave is building, but you can see that it's building and it's going to stop building, and then you can enjoy uh, surfing on it, you can, you can enjoy paddling through it and, and enjoying that wave, but this wave just kept building and building and building and building, and it didn't, it didn't ever seem like it was going to stop building or crest over, it, it just it seemed like it was going to keep building forever, and I remember sitting on my surfboard thinking, this is how I'm going to die, like this is so massive there's no way I'm going to survive this. And sure enough, I mean, I didn't even attempt to ride this wave. I was trying to paddle through it and duck dive under it. Nothing was working. And it just, it, the, the affectionate term that surfers use is washer machined me. It just destroyed me in the washer machine of a tidal wave. And I was holding my breath. I thought, this is the end. I'm not, I couldn't find the bottom uh, of the ocean floor to be able to jump up. I, I thought, this is it. I'm dead. But it all began in that moment when I, as I'm looking at that wave, it just kept building and building and building and, and just a wall of water that was going to engulf me that there was no way I was going to get out of. By God's grace, I, I did make it. Obviously, I'm here standing before you today. So three times my life has flashed before my eyes, but none of them have ever ended in my death. I think our Savior on the cross in the back three hours, he's on the cross for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The first three hours is daylight. 
it's just a normal day. People are talking, people are walking by the execution. People are talking to those that have been executed, that are there on the cross. People are dialoguing together around the cross. But right as noon is about to hit, right at midday, the sky is going to go black. As John Stott said, our sins blotted out the sunshine of Jesus' father's face. Spurgeon said it was midnight at midday. There had been so much activity around the cross during the first three hours, but the Gospels do not record a single event that happens in the last three hours, except for Jesus' speaking and the response to his talking. Nothing happens. It all stops. All the commotion, all the activity, it stops. The reason why it stops is because of this darkness, supernatural, rolling in and blotting out any last beam of sunlight. And I just, I think of our Savior hanging on the cross, pinned to a tree, looking out over the Judean sunshine. And as I felt on that surfboard, looking at that wave growing and realizing, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this. Our Savior watched. At just 1158, he starts to see darkness rolling in, clouds forming. But he knows he's not making out of, out of this. He knows this is the wave of the Father's wrath that's going to pour over him and will engulf him and will destroy him. He's not making it out of this. In the first three hours, he has said three phrases. He's speaking coherently. He's talking to people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He's having conversations. He speaks to the criminal that's on the cross, the thief next to him, and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I promise you, truly, truly, today you'll be with me. But as noon hits, all of that changes. Everything changes, and he cannot even speak a word. Even the four things that he's going to say, the Bible tells us happened at the very end of those last three hours. So it's silent for two hours and 50 minutes. And then Jesus will say four rapid-fire statements, one after the other. He can't speak. He can't move. I think that he sees that darkness rolling in. And as he sees it, he starts to, to grimace, to, to tighten up, to hold on for dear life as he knows he's going to experience hell itself for three hours. And I think that everybody looking on just sees a man in torment and agony that is absolutely inexplicable. They see it on his face as he's writhing in agony. His, his, his teeth are, are gnashing together. He, he can't open his mouth. He's trying to take breath, but he, he's unable to do so. He's, he's in such torment. Everything stops. Everybody's looking at this man. They, they knew that he was dying differently as he was speaking words of love and affection and care. And now they know for sure he's dying differently because this is a different type of agony that they're seeing him going through. Pinned to the cross, he stays silent for almost three hours. And then he will break the silence with four statements. The first of them is found in Matthew 27. So let's read this passage together and then we will ask God's blessing on our time. Matthew 27, verse 46. Let's start in verse 45. From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Hour. So the sixth hour, that's noon. The sixth hour is uh, calculating from about sunrise. So six hours from sunrise around 6 a.m. So six hours is noon. From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, so at the very end of those three hours, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who heard it were standing there, and when they heard it, they began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, and he put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. 
Father, these words uh, are words that we will never fully comprehend because we're never going to experience being forsaken by you. We're never going to understand, for those of us who are believers, we will never understand what it is to be God-forsaken people. We deserve it. Our sin demands to be forsaken of you. But Jesus, you took that penalty in our place. You bore the wrath of the Father in our place so that we could be free and never once for a second of our lives experience being forsaken. So, Father, I pray that you would be pleased this morning through your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the glory of Christ, to the wonder that is found in the cross. Open our eyes to see Christ on that cross, to feel as if he died just yesterday, to watch him in agony, to hear him scream in pain, but not physical pain, spiritual torment beyond anything we could possibly comprehend. Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Without your help, we won't see what we need to see. We won't feel what we need to feel. We won't comprehend what we need to comprehend. And we won't live out what we need to live out. So guide us now. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Four sayings in the last three hours. Remember, there are seven sayings total. Three in the first three hours. Four in the last three hours. Jesus, in the midst of darkness, which is signifying God's presence of his wrath and his judgment for sin, he stays there on the cross with no speech, no words, no conversation. There's silence. Nothing's happening. And then he breaks the silence. It's recorded in Matthew 27, which is also in Mark 15, verse 34, that Jesus cries out at the end of those three hours, and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to call this a cry of unrestrained damnation. A cry of unrestrained damnation. We looked at the different cries from the cross in the first three hours of love and care and assurance and compassion and kindness and forgiveness. And now Jesus breaks the silence in these back three hours with a cry of unrestrained damnation. This is wrath being poured out with no restraint. God the Father is pouring out every ounce of his wrath against our sin upon Jesus' shoulders. And that's why he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Notice number one, this is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, direct, con uh, direct quotation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Direct quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. John Shepherd says, these words mark the climax of the suffering of Christ for a lost world. Here he drank to the dregs the cup of sorrow, grief and pain on our behalf. In these hours when the sun refused to shine upon suffering deities, Jesus found fitting expression to, to his feelings of desolation in the words of the psalmist. Jesus had to pay the price alone and tasted death, spiritual death for everyone. Spiritual death is broken communion. Jesus had a taste of such a broken communion, the first and last that he ever experienced in those desolate hours when darkness lay upon the earth and upon his soul. This cry, this statement is an explanation. It's the explanation of Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he was not even able to stand up, but he fell down on his face because of the sorrow that was in his heart and the anguish that he knew he was going to feel. These words are the explanation of that anguish. He knew not the physical pain. That's not why he was terrified in the garden. In fact, if I think that's why he's terrified in the garden, if that's why we see our Savior in utter agony in the garden, uh, if it's only over the physical suffering, I, I submit to you that he is a wimp and we shouldn't follow him. Because even his disciples who come after him, they die better deaths than he does then. Because if he 
is terrified of the physical suffering at the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's only the physical suffering that's in view that he's terrified of. Look at Peter. You remember Peter? He's crucified upside down, which seems to be a worse death than being crucified right side up. And he, we, we know that he goes to his death singing hymns and praising God, that he says to his wife who's crying for his death, he, do, he says, don't cry for me. You don't have to weep for me. I'll see you soon. I'll see our kids soon. It's a great, glorious death that I get to go to. So if Jesus' followers died more valiant ways and more valiant deaths than Jesus, then we should follow his disciples. No, I, I don't think that it was the physical pain that Jesus was terrified of. I don't think that mattered to him at all. What mattered to him is this, being forsaken by God. That's why he was in utter agony. That's why he was in anguish in the garden. And these words explain what he was so terrified of. He wasn't terrified of the physical pain. He was terrified of being forsaken of God. G. Campbell Morgan says it this way, the logical, irresistible, irrevocable issue of sin is to be God forsaken. Sin in its genesis was rebellion against God. Sin in its harvest is to be God abandoned. Man sinned when he dethroned God and enthroned himself. He reaps the utter harvest of his sin when he's lost God altogether. That is the issue of all sin. Now listen solemnly. And from that cross, hear the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is hell. No other human being has ever been God forsaken in this life. Man by his own act alienated himself from God, but God never left him. What explanation can there be of this cry from the lips of Jesus? None other is needed than that declared by his herald three years before. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He has taken hold upon sin. He has made it his own. On that cross, he was made sin. And therein he passed to the uttermost limit of sin's outworking. He was God forsaken. He knew no sin. He was made to be sin. And therefore, he was forsaken of God. From the earliest infancy, Christ had suffered from man. From the beginning of his public ministry, he had suffered from Satan's temptation. But at the cross, Jesus suffers from the hands of God. That's why we say this is unrestrained damnation. This is hell itself, the condemnation for sin. God's pure, righteous wrath against sin. And that's why Jesus says, my God. Remember the first phrase he said on the cross was, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, reconciled right relationship. You are my father. I am your son. But now his language changes. It's not, Father, why have you forsaken me? He does not address God as Father. He addresses God as judge. You are God over me. You are God over me. You are my judge estranged relationship, forsaken relationship, abandoned by the Father because of the sin that he was bearing away. In Jewish times back then, as it is even to this day, when a Jewish student is meditating upon a certain passage of, of Hebrew scripture, they'll quote the bookends to remind themselves of what's happening. I believe that's what Jesus is doing on the cross because Psalm 22, he's going to quote Psalm 22 verse 1, and then he's going to give kind of a, uh, a summary statement of Psalm 22 at the very last verse, verse 31. He's meditating on Scripture, and he cries out, I have been forsaken. The completeness of the separation of Jesus mirror, mirrors the completeness of the rejection that we deserve because of our sin. R.C. Sproul says it this way. When Jesus took the curse upon himself, he so identified with our sin that he became a curse. At the moment that Christ took upon himself the sin of the world, he became the most grotesque, most obscene mass of sin in the history of the world. I've heard many sermons about the physical pain of death by crucifixion. I've heard graphic descriptions of the nails and the thorns. Surely the physical agony of the crucifixion was a ghastly thing. But there were thousands who died on crosses and may have had more painful deaths than that of Christ. But only one person has ever received the full measure of the curse of God while on a cross. On the cross, Jesus was in the reality of hell. He became a curse for us so that someday we will be able to see the face of God. 
so that the light of his countenance might fall upon us, God turned his back on his son. It is no wonder that Christ screamed. Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we could drink the cup of communion that we're going to share in this morning. He drank a cup, and it was the cup of judgment and wrath so that you and I can drink the cup of redemption of the new covenant. There's simply no comparison that can be made between our sufferings and the sufferings of Christ. There's no comparison that can be made. But I do think that his suffering is instructive for us as sufferers. Some implications from this first statement. Number one, we see from the cross, from this cry on the cross, that asking why in the midst of suffering is not sinful. Some people, well-intentioned people, say that if you're asking the question, God, why are you doing this in the midst of your suffering? You must have little faith. You must not believe. You must be doubting. You must be struggling. Maybe you are, but not necessarily so. Because our Savior asked on the cross, why have you forsaken me? And he knew the answer to that. He knew this was the Father's will. He knew this was the only way to be saved. He knew this was the only way that we could be forgiven. And yet he still cries out in agony, why? So, brothers and sisters, may we be very, very slow when we hear others say, God, why are you doing this in the midst of their suffering? May we be very slow to condemn them or to judge them for saying that, thinking that they have some doubt or unbelief in their hearts. No, Christ is not doubting with unbelief in his heart. He's merely in agony saying, okay, God, why? Also, implication number two, he's quoting scripture in the midst of his suffering. Scripture enables us to go through suffering. Scripture sustains us in suffering. And Jesus is an example from his temptations of answering Satan with scripture, quoting it constantly throughout his life, even into his death. Being executed on a cross, he's still quoting scripture. But brothers and sisters, this statement from the cross, this statement is a statement that reminds you and me that we deserve the wrath of God, but that wrath has been given to someone else. Jesus has willingly, joyfully taken your punishment so that you can be forgiven. The first cry from the cross is one of unrestrained damnation. It's a cry of the unrestrained damnation that's being poured out on Christ. This, this uh, fifth cry from the cross, uh, the second in the back three hours, is a cry of anguished preparation, a cry of anguished preparation. This cry is only found in the Gospel of John, so turn with me to John 19. This is a cry of anguished preparation. And when we get to this cry, this is a statement from the cross that just honestly seems out of place. Like that old Sesame Street game, right? One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. You have all these majestic, glorious statements from Christ on the cross. And then there's just this one statement. Even when I ask people, can you give me uh, all the words that Jesus said on the cross? Give me the statements that Jesus said on the cross. This is the one that they usually forget. Because it just doesn't seem like it fits with all of the glory of what Jesus is saying. It's in John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already be accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. After this, what's the this? After the torment of the cross, the agony of the cross, after experiencing hell in our place, after bearing the wrath of God against our sins, Christ says, I am thirsty. Now, some will say that this points to the humanity of Christ. He's thirsty, he's, you know, uh, exhausted, he's lost a lot of fluids from being crucified, and so it points to the humanity of Christ. It does, it definitely does, but I don't think that's the point of this 
statement. I don't think that's the main point. J.C. Ryle says the chief point of this statement is to tell us of the humanity of Christ. I think the chief point of uh, this statement isn't to tell us of the humanity of Christ. We see the humanity of Christ in the fact that he was dying. You know, we don't need any more uh, understanding of his death and his humanity than what he's doing in his death. I think there's something more here. And I actually think it fits with what's happening. I think there's something glorious in this statement that we tend to miss if we just gloss over. All things have been fulfilled. Everything's been accomplished. He's finished that cup of the Father's wrath and turned it over on the table. It's done. There's no wrath left to face. And he wants to tell you that. Jesus has something to say, and he wants to say it, but I don't think he can say it. And I think he, we, we have evidence of the fact that he can't say it, physically can't say it, because of what just happened. He just cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But most people who were standing there heard it as he's calling for Elijah, which it could potentially be if you say the Eloi, Eloi a little bit differently. Please come to me, Elijah. Please come to me, Elijah. Obviously, Jesus hears what they're saying about what he just said. Well, let's see if Elijah comes. Maybe some people were mocking him. I'm sure that they were. Maybe some people actually said, I think that he said Elijah. I think he's calling for Elijah. And so Jesus has something to say, but he wants to make sure this time he is heard clearly. Obviously, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people misunderstood it. He doesn't want this next statement to be misunderstood. Crucifixion drains the body of every ounce of energy, stamina, fluid that you have. And so I think with probably a voice that isn't even audible to anybody but that person that's standing right at the foot of the cross, with barely a whisper, that cotton-mouth feeling where you can't even get any saliva in your mouth. Jesus just whispers the words. Because he has lived his whole life for the purpose of saying these next words. And he does not want them to be misunderstood. He was born to die to tell us something. He's lived his whole life to get to this point. And since he was just misunderstood, he wants to make sure that he's not misunderstood when he says this next word. And so he says with a whisper, I'm thirsty. And he's given this sponge with this sour wine. And I think that he just takes it to his lips. He sucks a little bit of the moisture back into his mouth. I think he just kind of moves it around his mouth. He's trying to get life back into his voice box, trying to get some sense of ability to speak. So that he can say what he has been living his whole life to say. We celebrate Christmas in a couple weeks. The whole point of Christmas is to get to this statement. And it's the next verse. It's verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he's moved it around in his mouth. Swallowed it, gotten some voice, gotten some life into his voice box, and he's able to say this word. He's able to say these words. And he's lived every second of his life for the purpose of saying this. He receives the sour wine, and he says, it is finished. It's finished. One word in the Greek. Tetelestai. It's paid in full. This is a word that would be stamped in Greek commerce. If you owned a business and somebody came to your business and they purchased something but they still owe you money, you'd say, you owe me money. You're in debt to me. And then when they come back and they pay you that money and it's completely paid in full, they would take the record of debt that you have and they'd stamp that word, to Tetelestai, on that record of debt. It's paid in full. Nothing left to be paid. Everything's been accomplished. I think that Jesus is saying not only has all of the prophecies, all of the uh, promises that were made in the Old Testament about my suffering and my dying, not only have they been accomplished and finished, but your punishment that you deserve, that I deserve for my sin, it's been paid in full. Everything's been accomplished. The books are balanced. The price 
is paid. It's no wonder that he says, I'm thirsty, because he wants us to hear this, this next cry. It's finished. That's cry number six, and I would call it a cry of absolute victory. In the moment of his death, in the moment when he is a victim of a, a, a crime, um, being murdered as an innocent man, in that moment, he is the victor. He's not dying as a victim. That's why he says, give me something so that I can drink, so that I can get some life back here into my throat and into my tongue and into my voice box. I want to say something as the victor over sin, over death, over hell itself. It's finished. This is a, a near direct quotation from Psalm 22, verse 31. Uh, Psalm 22, verse 31 says, you have accomplished it. It's the last verse in Psalm 22. He starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he ends with, it's finished. You've accomplished it. It's accomplished. It's done. So brothers and sisters, what more, what could break the of God more than somebody saying that they have to add to the work of Christ. When he says, I've done it all, I've paid it all, and then we say, thank you, I need to do something. What more could we do? What more could we do? What more do we need to do? If God says it's finished, why would we dare to think, well, it's not quite yet done? I need to try harder. I need to be better. I need to stop doing certain things. I need to start doing certain things. And then God will love me. Then it will be finished. That's why the Bible says, cease striving. Be still and know that God is God. If he says it's finished, you just trust that. It's finished. You paid it all for me. The second question I have for our hearts this morning is, what more must God do to prove his love for you. I don't know if during these last months of this chaotic COVID season, whether it's just simple frustration over plans being ruined, whether it's losing a job, or whether it's losing a, a loved one or a friend, in the midst of suffering, it is easy for us to wonder, okay, God, do you really care? Do you see and this isn't really kind or loving of you. And I understand that. I understand that feeling. But when we hear Jesus say, I've paid it all in full, it's finished. What more do we need Jesus to do for us to live in a settled state of knowing, oh, he loves us. Any trial that we go through, it's not because he doesn't love us. Any difficulty we go through, it's not because he doesn't care. He proved that once for all. If the Father did not spare his own Son, but delivered him for us all, Romans 8.32 says, how then will he not, with Christ, freely give us all things? He's already done the hardest thing in giving us Jesus. Any other thing for Jesus to do, for God to do for us, is a very, very easy thing. This is a cry of absolute victory. It's finished. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. It is finished. That leads us to the last statement that Christ makes from the cross. This is in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit into your hands, Father. Notice the relationship is restored. It was broken. The fellowship was broken. At the beginning of the, the time on the cross at 9 a.m., Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Perfect reconciled relationship. Then in the middle, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the relationship is broken. But here, because it is finished, because it's been paid in full, because there's no more wrath to feel, God is no longer the judge of Christ. God is the father to Christ. And so Christ cries out, Father, reconciled relationship. It truly is finished. Relationship restored. 
He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is a fulfillment of what Christ said in John chapter 10, verse 18. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, then I will have authority to take it back up again. But nobody kills me. I let myself go. I give myself up to the Father. That's what he's doing here. Father, I can die now. So I give my spirit to you. I relinquish myself to you. Notice also, this is another direct quotation. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 31, verse 5. Psalm 31, verse 5. Jesus is just quoting scripture after scripture on the cross. Again, scripture sustains us in the midst of suffering. Actually, there are quotations and prophecies scattered all throughout these six hours on the cross. Isaiah 53, 12, Luke 2, 35, Matthew 1, 21, Psalm 22, 1 and 5, or Psalm 22, 1, Psalm 69, 21, Psalm 22, 31, Psalm 31, 5. I mean, just constant scripture either being quoted or being fulfilled. And so here for, I mean, more than 12 hours, really, Jesus has been in the hands of men for them to do their worst to him. But now he can rest in the hands of of his father. And by the way, Jesus is dying as a human, fully human. So often we just instantly play the divine trump card. Jesus is absolutely deity. He had not relinquished any aspect of his deity. He's 100% God. But through the kenosis, through the incarnation, through Christ emptying himself, he never emptied himself of deity. He emptied himself of the independent exercising of his divine attributes. So is Jesus omniscient on the earth? Absolutely he is because he's God. But does he himself use that voluntarily, independently on his own? No. He waits for the Father to allow him to do that through the Spirit. But he does not do that on his own. Could he do it on his own? Absolutely he could. That's the whole point of the temptations. Remember when, uh, when Satan talks to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, he says a couple things that are clearly immoral, right? Bow to me, that's wrong. Uh, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and test the Lord, that's wrong. Those are clearly immoral things to do. But Satan also says, hey, turn this rock into bread. That's not immoral. There's nothing sinful about that. Why is that a temptation for Jesus. It's a temptation because what Satan is asking Jesus to do is to step outside of humanity's limitations. He willingly took upon the limitations of humanity upon himself. So that you and I can't do that, right? We can't get hungry and go, great, there's a tree over there, I can make a pizza. We can't do that. So Jesus, though he is able to do that, because he has to live our lives perfectly, he has to live as a human being perfectly, he says, I can't do that. Unless the Father allows me to do it through the power of the Spirit, Father, can I do it? No? Okay, then I'm not going to do that. I say all that to take us to this end. When Jesus is dying, I, I think there is something staggering to realize. Jesus is living inside of our limitations. When you die, you believe that you will go to heaven. You have assurance that you will go there. But you've never been there. You have to believe by faith. You believe that your body will be resurrected on the last day, but you don't know that for sure. You've never been there. We believe by faith. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is doing the exact same thing here. Father, I commit myself to you. I give my life to you. You have promised that I will be raised from the dead. I even told people, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise her from the dead. And I believe that's going to happen, but I'm dying in faith, trusting that it will happen. He's not playing the God trump card of, this is an easy thing to die, because I know I'm going to be raised from the dead three days later. He's dying, trusting in the goodness of God, his heavenly Father, to fulfill the promises that he made. And that's why he can rest. He dies as a human, believing these things to be so. He breathes his last. After he breathes his last, there are several miraculous things that happen. The veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Graves open up and the dead who had believed in the coming of the Messiah uh, are 
raised and they go out of the tombs to, to speak to others about the Messiah being exactly who he claimed to be. There's a huge earthquake, a supernatural earthquake. And the centurion that's at the foot of the cross says, as Jesus breathes his last, truly this man is the son of God. Seven cries from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Today, truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. And then darkness hits, no speaking for two hours and 55 minutes. And then Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry of unrestrained damnation. Then he cries out, in, in a whisper, he speaks, I am thirsty, anguished preparation. He's preparing himself to say the sixth statement, the cry of absolute victory. It is finished. It's accomplished. It's paid in full, which leads to the final statement, a cry of trusting rest, trusting rest. Father, into your hands, I trust, I entrust myself to you and I can rest in you. So upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's death, another's life, I cast my soul eternally. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who unto my charge can lay? Fully absolved by Christ I am from sin's tremendous curse and blame. My friends, it is finished. It is finished. Do you believe it is finished? Not just intellectually, but functionally. Do you live as those who know your price has been paid? It's been stamped over your record of sins. Tetelestai, paid in full, nothing left. The books are balanced. You're free to go. Are you seeking to add something of your own to merit God's favor? Are you seeking to add something, whether it's a good work or a good deed a good thought, a good emotion. You're trying to do something to make God look at you and say, this is why I saved you, because you're so good, or add to God's love for you somehow, some way. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing left for us to do but to just trust in God's finished work on the cross. There's nothing more for God to do to prove his love for us. So R.A. Torrey says, I am ready to meet God. This is the implication of Jesus' death on the cross. Because of what Jesus did, I am ready to meet God and to see him face to face and to look into those eyes of holiness that are infinitely holy because all of my sins are covered by his atoning blood. Seven statements from the cross that lead us to absolute gratefulness. As we come to communion, as we come to a place where we get to celebrate the death of Christ, as I said earlier, there's just no better sermon to enjoy communion, to follow with communion than this. Christ cries out, it's finished. I've paid it all for you. Yes, all to him we owe, right? Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe, but we don't owe it to him in order for us, for him to love us. We owe it to him because he infinitely and freely already loves us. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. We forget that. Communion is a reminder to us because we are such a forgetful people. It's a reminder to us of the beauty of the gospel. You and I live every day in a functional way denying the gospel, whether it's through our sin, where we say, you know what, God, you're not satisfying and I need something else. Whether it's our own good works for the purpose motivated by trying to earn God's favor, I'm going to love you so that you would love me. I'm going to do something for you so that you have to do something for me. To make God our debtor. There are so many, so many ways that we functionally live as if the gospel were not true. And that's why we gather.
celebrate communion because it recalibrates our understanding of the, the reality of the beauty of the gospel. We're reminded through communion, wait, the beauty of Christ and the glory of Christ and the glory of the gospel needs to recalibrate our focus such that we remember God's love for us that motivates our love for him, that motivates our love for one another, that motivates our grace and our kindness and our care and our compassion for one another. So at this time, I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing on our time. If you have your communion elements before you, go ahead and take them, get ready to partake of them. If you do not, uh, somebody will grab some for you. There's some on the table here. But I want to ask God's blessing as we celebrate together the beauty of the gospel through communion. So would you just quiet your own hearts in prayer? Reflect on these statements. Remember we started last week by saying when we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. So if you would just close your eyes and bow in your own hearts in submission before the Lord, listen to the cries from the cross. Meditate on them together, and then we will partake of communion. Father, we do gather to listen to the cries now. We want to hear them. We, want, we, are, we are intellectually informed, but we want now to be shepherded through them, to be reminded of the beauty of each statement as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion. And now as we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, work in us a love for Christ that is something that can only be explained by the power of the Spirit. Jesus' seven statements from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Truly, truly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm thirsty. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, we are undone as we watch you on the cross, as we hear the words that you spoke. We are undone by your kindness and your compassion. And we, like the centurion, would just respond, truly you are exactly who you claim to be. You are the Son of God. So Jesus, be pleased now as we remember you through communion. Pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. On the night that Christ was betrayed, just hours before what we have just spent our time this morning discussing, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. I am giving myself so that you could be made whole. I will be broken so that you can be put back together again. You are broken. I am not. I'll be broken so that you can be made whole. That's the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the wondrous mystery of the exchange of Christ in our place. Paul said, as often as we do it, remember Christ. Let's remember him with gratefulness in our hearts together as we partake of the bread. In the same way, Jesus took the cup this is the cup of the new covenant. He raised it. He said, this is the cup 
of a new covenant, the cup of my blood, which is poured out for the sins of many. I will be killed so that you can live. I will be made to be sin so that your sin could be taken away. I will drink your cup of wrath and damnation so that you can drink this cup of blessing. Brothers and sisters, when we drink this cup, we should hear the words echoing in our heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can only drink this cup because those words were said. Because Christ was forsaken because of our sin being put on him. And so here we can drink this cup knowing we will never be forsaken because it is finished. And Paul said that as often as we do it, we do it proclaiming Christ's death and the fact that he's coming again. He didn't stay dead, and that's what we're going to study next week. But brothers and sisters, it is finished. It's been paid in full. Let's partake together with joy and thankfulness in our hearts to God. Let's drink this. Father, we do thank you. What can wash away our sins? It is nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so we stand amazed in the presence of our Savior. We're blown away at this man of sorrows that is acquainted with grief, that died a truly unimaginable death so that we can live eternally. Father, I pray that our hearts would be recalibrated as we're reminded through these elements of the beauty of the gospel and of the functional outworking of it. There's nothing more you need to do to prove your love for us. God, we, we don't want to second guess it. Today, tomorrow, this week, we don't want to second it. We want to live in it. And God, there's nothing left for us to do. It is finished. It's paid in full. It's accomplished. We're we're free because of your work. That motivates us to work, but we never work to earn your favor. We work because you've already given us your favor freely. So may we live in the glory and the beauty of the gospel this day. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please uh, stand with